I have a couple books if you're interested in this topic. Uh, I'll just mention them and then I'll set them over here. You guys can look at them um, if you want. The one that I would say is the best overview is this book I wrote at the top, right on the title there, People Get Ready, A New History of Black Gospel Music by this guy, Robert Darden. I need three hands, don't I? And um, this, is, this is a really, really helpful book. We're going to talk some, a lot, of, a lot of people know Negro spirituals maybe as they've been sung from a hymnal, or maybe you've heard the Fist Jubilee Singers here in Nashville, Tennessee. The Fist Singers are really the ones who first um, sing these songs in a way that white people can hear them for the first time. And they tour not only America, but England, Germany, they go all over the place, right? To, uh, really, they start out to raise money for the school, because the school's about ready to go under. And um, yet, the thing about it, as, as we're going to get into this, I'm going to try and play you some examples. No one knows exactly what the spirituals originally sounded like, but one thing we do know is they didn't sound like the way the fifth singers sing them. Right? And there's, that's always a, a kind of an interesting and somewhat difficult subject to talk about. But the way the fist singers sing them is like Europeans would sing them. And they really had to do that to be taken seriously as art. This book actually speaks to that issue, um, which is a somewhat controversial issue to speak to. Um, because there are sort of like, well, there's, there's some people that, uh, people like Lowell Mason, who's very influential in church music, also starts a movement called the Better Music Movement, where he thinks that we need to sing, Americans need to sing like the European composers, with all the rules of how you sing. And that's not how African Americans sang. It's not how actually people in America sang before that. But the Better Music Movement is really influential in the early 1800s, particularly because Lowell Mason is the guy who gets music education into public schools. So public schools become the way that he kind of teaches this view of music. I actually just went to a sacred harp singing yesterday. Does anybody know about sacred harp shape note singing? That's how people used to sing. And it's, it's, it violates a lot of the rules of singing, right? So you can hear kind of how people used to sing. I think it's beautiful in even its kind of roughness. And I think the same about the spiritual. So um, he speaks about that and beyond. So if you're interested in the African background up through you know, the early colonial period, all that kind of stuff, this is like the one book I'd highly, highly recommend. Then, um, as you know, the Fisk Jubilee Singers, we have Fisk University here in Nashville. Who, who's ever been to Fisk? I know I talked to one guy who took a class on the history of Fisk at Fisk, right? Okay, hold on, who, who's been there? Yeah, a lot of people have never even been over there. And um, that's a shame, because you really should go visit there. It actually is, I'll, you know, this, uh, Rob Wheeler asked me this little trivia question. Um, the reason Nashville is called Music City is because of Fisk, and because of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. When the Fisk Singers sang for the Queen of England uh, in the 1870s, I think it was, um, she said to them, if everyone in Nashville sings like this, then it must be Music City. Now, I don't know if that's an apocryphal tale, but that's, that's the story. I, I actually was looking, this is the original book, The Story of the Jubilee Singers, and I'll pass it around as long as you don't open it up all the way, right? If you're just real careful, like open it up only like that much, you can see that. I sent David Filson um, a little uh, excerpt from that book because Spurgeon actually had the Fist Singers sing at his church. He was one of the few people that did. In America, when they went on tour, they found that churches had special music, and so they could perform. But in England, they didn't really do that. 
But uh, Spurgeon heard them singing in the hallway after he had preached, he would always meet people in his study and people would line up and they would meet with him briefly for spiritual counsel. And the Spiss singers came, heard him preach and were in the hallway kind of waiting their chance to talk to him. And some of the people there waiting in line got him to sing a song and he heard it through the door and was just moved to tears. And so he invited them to come back for the Sunday night service and sing and he said, you know, it's not what we normally do, but I don't really care. You know, we're just gonna, we're gonna do this. Um, and some of the deacons were with him and they were moved to tears too. So he had them sing. So that was kind of cool. Connection between Brandy's class and Filson's class, all centers around the fist singers getting to sing for, uh, for Charles Spurgeon. Uh, anyway, so those are some really helpful books. And then there's a new book. This is actually really helpful. If you wanna know a lot about the racial background of Nashville, Tennessee, which I think is a wonderful thing to know about, this book, Dark Midnight When I Rise, The Story of the Jubilee Singers by Andrew Ward. This is a recent book and it gets a lot into like where did fists come from anyway? What happened here during the Civil War, right after the Civil War? Why were there tension even between other black colleges with Fisk and Finney and all of his disciples? What was their role? You know, if you're a PCA person, we don't like Finney, but his disciples were really the ones that came down here and started Fisk and started doing work with the ex-slaves in a way that uh, the old school Presbyterians weren't really interested in doing. So, you can have all that. All right, let's dig into this. Um, what are Negro spirituals? Where do they come from? Um, what do they mean? That's what we're gonna look at today. When did they begin? Well, it's a complicated question, particularly because all we have are written descriptions of this music. And you know you can listen to lot, read lots of them. I have a book over here, Readings in Black American Music by Eileen Southern. She's uh, written another wonderful book on the history of gospel music, where she gathers all the primary source readings. But they're very scant. People write about them. Really, one of the first people to write about them. How many of you guys have seen the movie Glory? Yeah. So do you remember the scene in Glory where the the black soldiers are singing around the campfires? and Matthew Broderick's character um, hears them. He actually, that actually is based in reality. Um, his soldiers were from the Georgia Sea Islands, right? And the Georgia Sea Islands were taken very quickly in the Civil War and they were able to outfit a regiment of black soldiers. Matthew Broderick's character, Colonel Higginson, um, was actually a Unitarian pastor and Harvard graduate and abolitionist. And so he wasn't really a soldier so much, but he ends up getting to command this regiment of black soldiers for the Union. And he's one of the first to write about these songs that they would sing around the campfires at night. You see, the slaves sometimes would sing, but often they would sing these songs in secret. They would often sing these songs in secret. And so there's not a lot of descriptions. His are some of the first descriptions of it, but he's not a trained musician. So it's hard to know exactly what to, what to make of his descriptions. It seems, as best I can tell, you know, that the spirituals are kind of a combination of West African musical styles, particularly the call and response element, where someone sings and then the group sings back to them. Now what's interesting is, um, in the early history of this country, that's how white people were singing in church as well. They did what was called lining out the Psalms. They didn't have song books, they didn't have hymn books, and so they would sing the Psalms 
and then later even Isaac Watts' hymns by lining it out. The leader would sing a line, the congregation would sing it back. So there's definitely a, a connection to that, and then when the, the slaves hear that, it resonates with something that's familiar from their own culture, and there's this fascinating kind of combination, boiling pot thing that happens. Um, you know, while the slave owners generally didn't want the slaves to be educated, they did like them to sing. And there's lots of, of really heart-wrenching descriptions of this from former slaves um, about how the masters always wanted them to sing happy songs. They didn't like to sing happy songs. Uh, matter of fact, I think it's Frederick Douglass who preached a famous sermon on 4th of July where he takes that, that psalm, you know, how can we sing the songs of Israel when we're in a foreign land? And says, you want us to sing these happy songs, the, the sort of myth of the happy slave. Look, they're singing and dancing. Um, Frederick Douglass says that's because our heart is breaking, not because they're happy songs. And, um, but, but there's definitely this connection between West African, particularly a thing called the uh, ring shout. Do you know about the ring shout? Now this is a controversial thing because um, it's based in more heathen pagan practices, you know, kind of native African religions, and yet the slaves are very, you know, committed to it. As a matter of fact, even when Christianity comes to the African Americans, there's a lot of controversy. Some feel like we have to have a ring shout to even be able to have somebody get converted. And then there's this guy, Bishop Payne, who's an African-American bishop who's really trying to stamp it out. And there's always this kind of tension. It's like, you know, in the black church, they, they have this, this, they've had this tension for a long time between like how much you assimilate and become like the white church, right? Versus singing songs in a more African way. It's been a tension for a long, long time, and you see that even with the fist singers, singing these spirituals, but singing them in a way that white people can appropriate and enjoy them. Um, so the ring shout, I, I, I had one little description I put down here about the ring shout. Um, this is a contemporary description of it. They all stand in the middle of the floor, and when the spiritual is struck up, that means they begin to sing it, they first begin walking and by and by shuffling round one another after the other in a ring. The foot is hardly taken from the floor, and the progression is mainly due to a jerking, hitching motion which agitates the entire shouter and soon brings out streams of perspiration. So if you can imagine this, just kind of a slow, and, you, and you, that rhythm, that's what they do. That's how they sing these songs. They don't sing these songs like white people in church, right? And actually that's true of most folk music, is that dancing and music go hand in hand. It's actually the odd thing to separate bodily movement from singing in, in sort of the history of what it means to be human, actually. Um, but that's kind of what we do. There's a great little um, essay by a guy named Rodney Clapp, C-L-A-P-P, called That Glorious Mongrel, How Jazz Destroys the Heresy of White Christianity. It's a fabulous article. And he says, you know, why is it that we think that worship should be more like a concert hall than a jazz club with interaction, with people kind of preaching back to the musicians, right? 
It's, it's fascinating. Okay, so they've got West African musical kind of background. You've got um, these, uh, well, you've got the Bible is an influence, but not all of the Bible necessarily. Now, again, the slaves were taught the parts of the Bible that the masters wanted them to learn. But of course, what happens is they begin to get other bits and pieces of the Bible. They're able to smuggle copies of the Bible. If, if some begin to learn how to read, they're able to read other parts that weren't necessarily opened up to them. And they begin to read stories about other oppressed peoples. So you see the spirituals go into areas of the Bible that the white masters didn't want them to know about. And they begin to resonate with other oppressed peoples like Israel in Egypt and Daniel in the lion's den. Those images and those stories begin to really resonate with the slaves under oppression. It is something powerful, you know, Hebrews chapter four talks about the, the scripture, the word of God is living and active and able to get in there and cut stuff up. And, and there, you see that in the history of these songs. These songs do not stay in the places in the Bible that the white masters wanted them to stay in. That as they begin to read the Bible for themselves, they find things that resonate with them, things that give them hope, but also things that cry out for justice now. And we're gonna talk about that when we talk about the meanings of the spirituals. Um, so the Bible is certainly a, a, a huge influence and not necessarily you know, all of the Bible, but particularly some of the stories and the stories of oppressed people. And that again fits in with the West African cultural background. It's a storytelling culture. Ironically, so is the Bible. <laughs> It's not necessarily the culture of, of white Americans as much, uh, but it's definitely you know, more in line with the culture of the, of the Africans and then the culture of the Hebrews and the early Christians. All right, another influencer, Isaac Watts' hymns. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in the early 1600s, early 1700s, um, white people sang, Europeans sang hymns for the most part. I mean, sorry, psalms. Okay, and Isaac Watts is the guy who really introduces hymn singing. It's a little more complicated than that, but he's the guy that really breaks the dam open. There's a guy named Samuel Davies. Anybody heard of Samuel Davies? Samuel Davies is the apostle of Virginia. He actually um, fought a famous lawsuit to enable him to be able to preach as a Presbyterian in Anglican Virginia, when you weren't really allowed to have religious freedom, okay? He also is America's first hymn writer and a president of Princeton College, which was known as the College of New Jersey there. So he's a good like Presbyterian um, guy, and he's actually even on our ordination church history exam sometimes, you know. But he also did a lot of work in Virginia with the slaves. And there was a group in London called the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel that was sending him Bibles, and he was happy to, to try to distribute these Bibles but he said, you know, if I could get some copy of Dr. Watts' hymns, the slaves love Dr. Watts. They'll stay up all night long singing Dr. Watts. That it seems that this music has a way of getting the gospel into their hearts like nothing I've ever seen. And so you can read in Eileen Southern's book different quotes about his letters. We have all his letters writing, talking about how important Isaac Watts was. And you will see 
that in some of this music. As a matter of fact, if you are in the black church, particularly kind of an older um, black church, you still may even hear sometimes them talk about singing a Dr. Watts. It's actually a way of singing. They're not even all Watts hymns. Matter of fact, I'm going to play you an example that's not a Watts hymn. It's actually a hymn by Horatius Bonar called I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say. And here's what I want you to, to hear. When people talk about this music, it's very difficult to write it out because it's not just one melody. The way I like to explain it is white church music is what we call bounded set. Like here are the lines, you better color within the lines. Black church music is more centered set. Here's the melody, and we're all tethered to it, but we're all kind of moving around, right? One, one writer said it's like trying to, to write down like the songs of birds, and, and then a whole flock of birds, you know? It's beautiful, it's musical, but how in the world can you write it down on a piece of paper? Not to mention the different tonal things that happen, the different voice effects and all that. So all I can do is play you an example that Alan Lomax recorded for the Library of Congress. This is what we call a lining out, but notice the line, the leader sings the line, and then the response is not just a repetition of it. It's just a launching pad. So I want you to hear this. This is in the common meter, he says. Yeah, it's coming up there. They've not even finished one line of the hymn yet. So you can imagine if you've been listening to Mozart <laughs> and then you hear people singing this, like you don't, you know it's music, but it's hard to even know how to even get your mind around this. It doesn't necessarily fit. You know, music theory, I, I remember hearing this in high school and all the music theory I've studied all through college and whatnot, I still think this is true. It's basically trying to figure out what Bach did. This is music theory, figuring out what Bach did and then trying to make up rules that even he didn't follow. Um, there's a lot of truth to that. The problem is Bach didn't, Bach didn't uh, explore all the God-glorifying potential that exists in this world that God created with regard to sound. It actually takes a whole world of cultural expressions to begin to understand all the God-glorifying potential that he built into music. That's a very, very different way of doing music, but it also is part of the world that God made that that kind of music can happen too, right? And so, um, anyway, let's sing a Dr. Watts. Um, so what, what you find is that lining out, and this is what you see, I, I, I think I've, I've 
put this in the next little point, improvisation brings all this stuff together. Improvisation is a way of life for oppressed peoples. If there's one thing that you know, I want you to take away from this, it's that. Improvisation is a way of life for oppressed peoples. Creativity often is sparked when you have limitations and you have to make do with what you have. And it's long been a feature of African-American music of all kinds. And you see it here, you've got the Bible, you've got Dr. Watts hymns and this lining out style, you've got West African cultural background, you've got polyrhythms and all these sorts of things that are part of African music, and it all kind of gets gelled together and it comes out like this. You also have black preaching. Black preaching is actually a, a, a pretty influential thing on in the development of the spirituals because black preaching is very different than white preaching. It's musical, it's responsive. This, the congregation preaches back to the preacher and we have records of some of the spirituals that are actually born in the midst of a worship service. When the preacher is preaching and he's kind of, kind of just sort of hammering on a point and the congregation is preaching back, speaking back, and it even develops into a song. And the best of those get remembered and, and sung again. So that's there's kind of this group improvisation. And now we do have a couple stories about particular songs. And if you see these little pictures here, this is unbelievable to me. Not, not unbelievable like I don't believe it, but I just think it's amazing. So there was a professor, he actually taught German, I think, and Latin, um, John W. Work. He's a very important person in the history of African-American music and Negro spirituals. He taught at Fisk. He wrote a book in 1915, which I have a copy of. Um, one of the cool things about living in Nashville is I was able to go to an estate sale of a guy named Matthew Kennedy, who formerly directed the Fisk Singers, and was able to get some really awesome stuff, uh, some books. And this is one of those. He's got this story in there. You'll see the picture of this lady, Mrs. Sarah Hannah Shepard. And he has under her picture, he says, in whose heart was born swing low, sweet chariot, and before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave. Now let me read you this little excerpt about swing low, sweet chariot, and where John W. Work says this song in particular came from. Do you know that one? It, many people know that one if they know just a handful of Negro spirituals. He says, a master of a Tennessee plantation had sold a mother from her babe. And the day for the separation was fast approaching when the mother was to be taken down south. Now the condition of the slave in Tennessee was better than that in any other state, with the possible exception of Virginia. This is John W. Work writing in 1915. Now the condition, uh, sorry, to be sold south was to the slave to make the journey from which no traveler ever returned. So it was not strange that the mother would sooner take her life and that of her babe than to go down into Mississippi, which to her was going to her grave. Bent upon throwing herself and her child over the steep banks of the Cumberland River. This is here, this is not just a story. This is Nashville we're talking about. Bent upon throwing herself and her child over the steep banks of the Cumberland River, she was stumbling along the dusty road, her infant clasped close to her breast, muttering in frenzy her dire determination, before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave. An old mammy, seeing the terrible expression on her face and hearing these words read her intentions. In love, she laid 
her dear old hand upon the shoulder of the distressed mother and said, don't you do it, honey. Wait, let the chariot of the Lord swing low and let me take one of the Lord's scrolls and read it to you. Then making a motion as reaching for something and unrolling it, she read, God's got a great work for this baby to do. She's going to stand before kings and queens. Don't you do it, honey. The mother was so impressed with the words of the old mammy, she gave up her design and allowed herself to be taken off down into Mississippi, leaving her baby behind. These two songs grew by degrees as they passed from mouth to mouth until they reached their present state. That prophecy of the old mammy was literally fulfilled. After the war, she means the Civil War, the baby girl entered Fisk University, and she was a member of the original Fisk Jubilee Singers who stood before kings and queens. When the tour of the singers was ended, this girl set out to find her mother, and after searching for some time, found her and brought her into a beautiful home where she lived in love and comfort until the summer of 1912, when the sweet chariot swung low and bore her home. She had been unconscious for some hours, talking about the old lady, but when she heard the strains of this, her heart-born song, which was being sung at her bedside, she awoke and made a supreme effort to join in the melody. That baby girl was Ella Shepard, who afterward became the pianist of the original Jubilee Singers. It's a remarkable story. It's a, like we think about that as being so far removed, but that was here in Nashville, and those were actual people with actual names. And there are probably still people alive today that knew Ella Shepard, or at least knew her kids. So we do have some of these stories, and you're like, whoa, what do you make of this? I hope it keep, takes it out of the realm of the abstract. I think sometimes we can just think about this stuff almost like it's a fictional fairy tale, and it didn't really happen. It's kind of like the Bible, you know, and then go into to Israel. You're like, oh yeah, Jesus actually was here. Like these people actually were here. That's why it's good to go walk around the campus at Fisk. William Francis Allen, in his intro to Slave Songs of the United States, 1867, this is one of the first uh, collections that was published, says this, the voices of the colored people have a particular, sorry, a peculiar quality that nothing can imitate. And the intonations and delicate variations of even one singer cannot be reproduced on paper. And I despair of conveying any notion of the effect of a number singing together. It means a whole group. Especially in a complicated shout like I can't stay behind my Lord. There is no singing in parts. That's how Europeans sing. And that's how the fifth singers sing the songs, actually, with different parts, like in a hymnal. Um, there is no singing in parts as we understand it. And yet no two appear to be singing the same thing. The leading singer starts the words of each verse, often improvising, and the others who bass him, that's what they call it, uh, strike in with the refrain or even join in the solo when the words are familiar. And what makes it all the harder to unravel a thread of melody out of this strange network is that like birds, they seem not infrequently to strike sounds that cannot be precisely represented by the gamut. That's the name for like a, a note, quarter note. And abound in slides from note, one note to another, and turns and cadences not in articulated notes. Another description of what this music sounded like, this is Frederick Douglass. 
He's talking about the slave songs that he heard before he was able to escape from slavery. I have sometimes thought that the mere hearing of these songs would do more to impress truly spiritually minded men and women with the soul crushing and death dealing character of slavery than the reading of whole volumes of its mere physical cruelties. I did not, when a slave, understand the deep meanings of those rude and apparently incoherent songs. They told a tale which was then altogether beyond my feeble comprehension. They were tones, long, loud, and deep, breathing the prayer and the complaint of souls boiling over with the bitterest anguish. Every tone was a testimony. That's a classic phrase. There's actually a whole CD of this music with that as the title. Every tone was a testimony. Let that phrase haunt you. Every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer to God for deliverance from chains. The hearing of those wild notes always depressed my spirits and filled my heart with ineffable sadness. And he actually, the excerpted part, he says, even while I'm writing about it now, years later, my tears are just streaming down as I think about this music. To those songs, I trace my first glimmering conceptions of the dehumanizing character of slavery. I could never get rid of that conception. Those songs still follow me to deepen my hatred of slavery and quicken my sympathies for my brethren in bonds. If anyone wishes to be impressed with a sense of the soul-killing power of slavery, let him go to Colonel Lloyd's plantation and on an allowance day, that's a day when they get a little money and they have a day off, very rare, maybe quarterly, place himself in the deep pine woods and then let him in silence thoughtfully analyze the sounds that shall pass through the chambers of his soul. So what did the songs mean? And you get a sense of it there in Frederick Douglass's quote. But this is really a fascinating topic. Um, there's a guy, James Cone, C-O-N-E. He's a liberation theologian. So I don't subscribe to all of his theology, but he makes some very good points in his book, The Spirituals and the Blues. He's actually too hard on the blues, I think, actually. He thinks that the blues are like the secular, hopeless counterpart to the spirituals. And I think that's too harsh and too one-dimensional. The blues are more complicated, and I think we should understand them in a more nuanced way. But besides that, he talks a lot about the double meanings that are there in the spirituals. A lot of people think that the spirituals, and even some of the slave owners thought that the spirituals were about pacifying the slaves. That if you get them to sing of heaven one day, that'll enable them to just endure and not rebel. So they were happy to have them sing these songs. What they didn't realize, the slave owners, is that the songs include lots of coded messages. Coded messages, double meanings. And this actually was a pretty routine sort of thing. The slaves would often play dumb, right? But they knew what was going on. And that actually ties into West African culture as well because the idea of the cunning animal that is able to outsmart the more powerful animal is a strong feature in African folk tales. You might know some of the Br'er Rabbit stories, right? I know Disney doesn't put that movie out anymore, right? I have the record. It's hard to find the vinyl record because they won't, you know, the Song of the South, you know, and there's a lot of offensive stuff about it. But for some people, at least maybe you know some of those stories about the trickster, right? That's a common feature in African folk tales. And it actually resonates, and you see it in a lot of these songs, that there are tricks to them. 
that you could sing this right in the presence of the white masters and they don't know that you're making a plan for escaping that very night. That's what is going on sometimes. Um, I got a few quotes for you here. Um, this from Darden. African myths, riddles, and proverbs are filled with stories of weak but clever animals outwitting their stronger counterparts, some of which found public expression in the Br'er Rabbit stories. And then James Cone writes about this. A lot of other people, too. Here's one particular example that's fascinating. Did you all talk about, Brandy, the Nat Turner Rebellion? No? Okay, so she's going to talk about this. 1831, um, Nat Turner um, leads a slave rebellion which is a big deal, and you can't understand American history without understanding that. Um, what's interesting is the song Steal Away, Steal Away, which is one of the more famous Negro spirituals, may in fact have been composed by Nat Turner himself. Strong evidence for that. And um, here, here's, listen to this, these lines. You might be rich as cream and drive you a coach and four horse team but you can't keep the world from moving around and not turn her back from the gaining ground. And you might be like, what is that last line? And not turn her back. Like it doesn't make linguistic sense. Well, you know, for the white masters, of course, the, the slaves, they don't even know how to speak English right. And that's part of what they do, right? Is they continually speak like that so you think they're stupid. So you don't suspect that they might actually make a plot or a plan. Okay, well, not turn her is really code for Nat Turner. Nat Turner. And that line appears in every verse of the song, Steal Away. Here's how Russell Ames talks about it. You can't keep the world from moving around could well be a way of saying to the masters, you can't stop change. You can't keep us from rebelling and escaping. The last line, and not turn her back from the gaining ground, seems to repeat the idea, but this is an odd and obscure line, phrased with an awkwardness rare in slave songs. Probably Nat Turner really stood for Nat Turner, repeated over and over again. So they're singing this song that seems like they're happy slaves on the plantation, but they're actually singing a song about Nat Turner's rebellion and you can't stop it. Coded messages, justice now. There's a lot of coded messages. I put a few of them down here. Moses often refers to Harriet Tubman and other advocates. Father Abraham often refers to Abe Lincoln. Crossing the Jordan meant crossing over into the north. And Satan is often the slave master. Frederick Douglass recalled singing songs of deliverance in front of his abusive owner, Mr. Freeman. And he writes this, a keen observer might have detected in our repeated singing of, O Canaan, sweet Canaan, I am bound for the land of Canaan, something more than a hope of reaching heaven. We meant to reach the north, and the north was our Canaan. So this isn't just like people analyzing 100 years later, oh, maybe there was, this is not like, you know, kind of postmodern, you know, interpretation. We have contemporary um, descriptions and explanations by former slaves, that these coded messages were indeed part of these songs. Let me play you some more music. Can I play you some more music? All right. Um, I'm going to play you one more. Now this, I'm going to play you from the Georgia Sea Island singers. The Georgia Sea Island singers are the best way to hear what this music might have sounded like originally, because they were cut off from the mainstream culture. They didn't have electricity. 
Um, when Al Lomax went there um, in the 1930s and first did recording, then he went back in the 60s and 50s, um, there was a woman there, Bessie Jones, who's important if you, you know, study this music, whose grandparents had been slaves and who taught her these songs and she didn't, they didn't have radio, they didn't have any other outside influences, they lived in this isolated community. So those were the songs that she knew without getting other influences in there. Does that make sense? Right, we also know, you know, that the, actually at the time of the revolution, a lot of the planters in the Georgia Sea Islands were loyalists to the, to the Royal England government and they took their slaves and went down to the Bahamas. And later in the 1800s, when song collectors go down to the Bahamas, they find that they're singing the same spirituals. So that's one of the reasons we think that the spirituals, you know, were even going on in the colonial period, because there was no way that the slaves in Bahamas would have learned the songs that developed on the plantations unless they'd already been going on. Does that make sense? So the Sea Island singers are the best way to hear what this music might have sounded like. So I'm gonna play you one of those. This is by John Davis, this is called Moses. Here, this is a song not just about the Bible, but about Harriet Tubman. All right, let me play you a little something else. This is a prayer with the singing underneath. Just to give you a sense of the music that goes all through these kind of church services. Even he's got a tone to what he's saying, right? All right, now I'm gonna play you the fifth singers. It's a very different thing, very different thing. It's still cool in its own way. Um, and this is from one of the early recordings, right, from the late teens, early, early 1920s. Um, but you can hear how it's been kind of squeezed into the mold of more European white singing. Now, that's a song called There's a Great Camp Meeting. Um, it's from a 78 recording. Um, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, you can learn a lot more about this when we finish this Museum of African American Music that they're putting where the old convention center was. Do you know about this? Um, yeah, I'm super excited about that. That's gonna be awesome. And hopefully they'll, it, you know, museums these days aren't just collections of stuff, they try to educate people. So I'm hoping that, 
the importance of Nashville and, the, and African American music will be highlighted and you'll learn a lot more about this. But you hear how different that is? Now the camp meeting, it's interesting, the camp meeting, that again happened around here. It happened up in Kentucky, it happened in Tennessee. As a matter of fact, all the presbyteries in, Nash, in Tennessee and Kentucky split off. Are we out of time? Is that one? Like two, minutes. two minutes, yeah. So um, all of that stuff you know, the camp meetings happened here. The camp meetings were one of the first times that black and white Christians were interacting together. And the camp meetings also had this element of singing little bits of hymns and then improvisation. And so you hear songs about the camp meeting and you get the camp meeting influence in the spirituals as well. I'm gonna play you one more thing, which is the uh, Go Down Moses from the Tuskegee Institute Singers. This is 1926. It's a little closer to the Georgia Sea Island singers, but it's still nice cleaned up harmonies. But you got some of the slides still in it. Last thing I'll say is interesting, you know, White people listen to this music and we're like, oh, this is so amazing. But for African-Americans, they don't, it's a strange kind of relationship. John Work writes about this. One of the reasons that, it was, that we almost lost all the spirituals is because after slavery, the slaves didn't want to sing that music anymore. As a matter of fact, even the Fist Jubilee singers who go around, they don't initially start singing this music. They initially are singing European classical music and nobody really is that excited about their songs and their concerts. It's kind of a novelty, okay, it's interesting. Um, but then after some of their concert, one of their concerts, they say, you know, we're gonna sing some of these folk songs afterwards if anybody wants to stay, uh, after a particularly bad concert where hardly anybody shows up. And a few people stay and respond in such a way that the Fist Singers are like, well, maybe we should put a couple of these songs into our program. But it's a classical music program, right? And so that's where they kind of sing the songs in a way that fit in that style. Well, what's interesting is Fisk University is here because of the money raised by the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Kept the place afloat, it was gonna go under. Even though the white people started it out, they didn't have a good plan for continuing to support it. And what ends up happening is, even in the early 1900s, the students do not wanna sing these songs in chapel. Like if the, the leader of chapel tries to sing these songs, John Work writes about this, like he can't get the students to sing it the songs that they're known for and famous for. Because it's, it's kind of reminds them of slavery. You're singing in like this broken English that's demeaning. And they don't just look at it as, oh, isn't that cool? So he talks about how we can look at it as kind of this cool thing, but it's really, you really gotta understand that it's, 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 got, it's got more tension and heartache. Um, to think about this. But hopefully by playing some of those Georgia Sea Island songs, you get a little feel for why you shouldn't just be like, oh, isn't that wonderful, isn't that nice? It's a little more complicated than that. But the Lord brought amazing, powerful music out of circumstances that you never would have thought could bring something so beautiful. So, there you go.